Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. So this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I want to remind you of one thing here. This podcast is brought to you by my book, Wholesaling Lease Options. We're going to be talking about lease options on this episode. But this is a book I wrote on how to flip lease options. In my opinion, it's one of the easiest deals, ways to do deals and to get started in real estate. I wrote a book on it. It takes take you a few hours to read. It's not a big, thick book. And uh, you can get it for free. Just pay shipping and handling at wlobook.com wlobook.com you get it for free just pay a little bit of shipping and handling and we'll send it out to you i get testimonials all the time about this book and um all killer no fillers i like to say cool so get it at wlobook.com right now it's free so okay let's jump right in we got chad corbett chad corbett chad where do you live <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. I, uh, I know I, you travel a lot. Where do you live travel, right now? I travel quite a bit. I'm in Roanoke, Virginia. I, okay. uh, I have a home here. All right. So we got a lot of cool things to talk about on this episode. Chad has been in the business a long time. When did you get started, Chad? So I started in real estate in 2005 in, uh, in brokerage, and I worked for a developer doing ski front, beach front, whole ownership. So I've been licensed in four states. Wow! And, uh, in 2011, I kind of hit the reset button. At 29 years old, I realized I didn't. I was. I'd work my way to the top of a industry that I didn't really want to be in. So, I spent the better part of a year camping and fly fishing all over North America, yeah. and ended up moving from Maui, Hawaii, to Roanoke, Virginia, a town where I knew nobody. Wow! So I think I think one of the questions always I heard you ask a lot, and and back in those days was. If I dropped you out of a plane with nothing but a hundred dollar bill and a laptop, what would you do? And I kind of put myself in that position. Really, I, I left a, a market with a median price of one point five million, making a great income, and dropped myself into a city where I knew nobody and became a real estate investor with zero relationships or or anything. So it's it's been interesting. And since then, I've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about what you did. This was in twenty eleven. Is that what you said? Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about what you did because you got a really cool story and uh, you're now doing a lot of different things um, and you're traveling a lot. We're going to talk about that. Um, you're one of the nation's premier experts on probates, how to get probate leads. We're going to talk about that. Okay. So Chad, by the way, is the introduction here, you have a podcast of your own too. What is your podcast? We actually, so we do most of our stuff on YouTube. I don't, YouTube. we're not podcasting. Every Thursday we do a live mastermind call and we have hundreds of agents and, and investors from across the country. So that's on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find, if you find our Facebook group, All the Leads Mastermind, you, you'll get, you know, there's info there. And then we do a role play call the first, you, typically the first Wednesday of every month. Uh, I'll do live role play in, in the probate space with agents and investors from all 50 states. Super cool. Um, we, that one we had planning the first Wednesday. So it's actually tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll do a live probate role play call. What's your um, YouTube channel? Uh, it's youtube.com forward slash all the leads. We'll get you there. So A-L-L-T-H-E-L-E-A-D-S. All the leads. And so the Facebook group is all the leads mastermind. Yes. All right, cool. So I want to talk about lease options here for a little bit, Chad. Um, this is one of the strategies that got you started in the business, right? 
It is. It was actually, so I started wholesaling first and I had spent my entire career working with millionaires and billionaires negotiating the price upwards. And all of a sudden I found myself like my first three months of wholesaling, you know, I made, I think $38,000 in the first quarter that I started. So I wasn't bad at it, but I didn't feel good about it. And what I realized is at that time in 2000, that was early 2012, you know, I had to say it's eight, eight out of 10 sellers in Roanoke were underwater slightly at least. And realtors were saying, you can't sell. And a lot of buyers were being told you can't buy. So I'm like, how do you bridge this gap? And like, how do you transaction engineer this so you don't have to say no? So I made a rule for myself, like there, there should never be a time in your business when the phone rings where you can't help somebody first and monetize it second. Oh, that's great. I what love that ended up becoming yeah. was like a four bucket system. So it, the first intersection is really equity. So when someone calls with a motivation to sell, is there equity? Yes or no? If yes, then it's a wholesale acquisition opportunity or a conventional listing. If no, then it's a short sale or creative financing. And I've been able to force every residential deal that's ever come to my desk. It, ha- it fits in one of those four buckets. So I had a system for each of those four. And, you know, creative financing was the, the, the one that had the most complexity because it could be sub two. It could be owner financing, could be a lease option. But there was never a reason that someone could call me if they own a house and they have a motivation to sell. I have a solution. I can help them and I can make money. Nice. I love that. I love having different options, right? Because not, it's not a one size fits all. One of the big, huge disadvantage advantages that wholesalers have today is they only have one offer they can give to a seller. Right. And that's what got me started in lease options. Cause I remember thinking I'm tired of throwing all these leads away that don't have any equity or enough equity. What if I could do a lease option on them and wholesale the lease option? So you started talking, you had a unique, very, powerful way that you do lease options. Talk about what you started doing with lease options and how you processed your deals. Yeah. So, I mean, you were really my inspiration. I, that's that's why I'm here. I'm trying to pay back. So I listened to your podcast in late 2011, early 2012, like every single episode. Oh, sweet. And I watched closely what you were doing. And I, I because of you, I learned about Wendy Patton and I yeah. looked at kind of what everybody was doing. And then I dipped my toe in. I like put some Craigslist ads out and, and then started to hear the stories of how everybody here had done it incorrectly. So I call them truck hood lease options because so many of the tenant buyers, the prospective tenant buyers that I would talk to, they signed the lease on the hood of a landlord's truck and thought there was an option. And then they went to exercise the option. And he's like, no way, I'm selling this house or I've already got a long-term tenant coming in to replace you. And they they had nowhere to go. They, you know, they could go to, to an attorney, but they had nothing signed. So it was an implied option, but there was no proof of it. And I, I just, I couldn't handle that. I'm like, this is like the fact that that's happening. Like, I feel like I have to step up and educate people and do it the right way. Yeah. So I looked at the way everybody else was doing it. And so I'm, I'm kind of an aim, 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 then fire kind of guy. I like to know that I know my stuff and this is, I just saw this as a space where my ignorance could cost other people a lot of money. So I sit down and kind of designed it. I said, what if you're standing in front of a liberal judge who is always going to side with the consumer versus the professional and you're defending your system in a courtroom in a courtroom? And I I mapped it out from there back where I had a paper trail and, and full disclosure along every step of the way. 
And then I kind of looked at it from the buyer's perspective, like really empathetically, what if I was in that position and I was yeah. putting my money into it? How, how do I, what can Chad show me that protects me? And that was where I saw the biggest opportunity to improve on, on the system that, that everybody else was using. You know, what if the seller that you, 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 you get in this great agreement and everybody agrees on the terms, then there's a divorce or a death or a lawsuit or, you know, something that happens outside of the buyer's control. They've done everything they can do. They've made their payments on time. They manned up and put down the option fee. And then they stand risk of losing everything because that's not, they're not protected. So what I would do is I would sign an option to lease option with the seller. Um, at this time, I was, I was not actually looking to own houses because I've, I've always had the aspiration to travel as much as I do now. So I didn't want to create a bunch of what, what, and in my opinion, like it for me with my lifestyle, those will be liabilities because I have maintenance for two years to make sure it closes. So I wanted to bridge the gap between the buyers and sellers and then get out so I could live life the way I wanted to live. So I would sign an option to lease option with the seller. And I typically found those on usually Craigslist, like Fizbo's or Expired's are really good. Craigslist was a great place back then. You remember Clickable Link? Oh, yeah. Oh, it was yeah. so nice. <laughs> but anyways, that was so I would usually find most of the prospects on Craigslist. I would say I had an 80%. It was insane. If I called 10 people, I could get eight of them to do this. It was so easy because they were they were out of options, right? They were yeah. on they were listed for sale by owner, grossly overpriced, and nobody was looking. And yep. so I would sign an, an option to lease option with the seller, get their get an equitable interest so I, I wouldn't be brokering the deal. And then I would go out and market. I would find the tenant buyer that I was comfortable with. And if you want to get into that now, I can tell you. Yeah, how. yeah, please do. Mm-hmm. So I said, what I quickly realized when I put out my first deal was I got covered up with tenant buyer requests. And I mean, like 200 emails in a day. I was just, I was like, how in the world? Well, what I quickly found is most of them would tell you they wanted to buy a house so they could get into a nice rental. They had no intention of actually buying. And when you tried to push them into a financial strategy to become a homeowner, they would lock down or just, I got to go, I'll call you back. And they were gone. So I said, how can I, like at this point, I was an individual practitioner. I was by myself. So I said, how can I turn my website into the underwriter? So I, I just used a combination of WordPress with a Jot Formidable, I think. I was using Formidable Forms and Jot Forms, but just yeah. simple forms. And I would ask for name, first name, last name, email. And I think that was it on the first step. And then once they submitted, they would get more information about the program and what it looks like. And the next step was click this button to apply. And no phone numbers anywhere because my phone just exploded. So I actually had to pull the number off of the website. So they would, when they clicked apply, it would, it would, the next form was a long form. And I just took my, I partnered with the largest mortgage company in Virginia. And we had an agreement where they would stick with my tenant buyers for at least two years. And we would require them to go to professional credit counseling. So I took the mortgage application. I think it's a 1004 is the form that they use. So it has everything you need to run a full mortgage application. Mm-hmm. When they clicked submit it, or there was a PayPal button. So they would pay $35 and that was for a criminal credit and sex offender background check, like a triple background check. They would pay the $35 submit. It would send an email to my mortgage banker. So with a full application, it would send an email to me and it would send an email to the credit repair guy. And everybody knew what, what their role was when that happened. 
what I found is it took about 200 people to go through stage one to get one good one in stage two. So it was like a 200 to one ratio. So I kept myself from, excuse me, fielding 200 phone calls by using free technology, like form generator I was using was free. The PayPal button yeah. was free that like whatever I paid for WordPress. I mean, what are you, what are you paying? Maybe $50 a month to host a WordPress site and every, like everything. Yeah. Not much at all. For, for less than 50 bucks, I was able to almost take myself out of it completely. So what I ended up with was a, a, a really qualified, really serious prospect. And then of those, like I would usually get three to four good prospects per property. And then I would choose the one that I felt like most needed a lease option. I'll say this, if any of you guys are in brokerage, if you have your real estate license, this was one of the best buyer lead generation tools I ever had. Like one, and we'll probably talk about this house. It's what the house that really got me into probate. I had four tenant buyers get through that application process. Three of them were able to get conventional loans and close in the next 60 days. But they had been told by so many people, it's so hard to qualify. You can't buy a house. You've got to have this amazing credit score. I was able to get them conventional financing. So I turned them down, literally had people fighting over this house. I turned three down and like, no, 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 just hold on. Like you can buy a house now. The person that's getting this home needs this more than you do. So like on that very first deal, I had three conventional buy sides and a lease option wholesale, like a, a lease option. So really, yeah, I mean, I, I made, I think I made $8,000 on the lease option and I probably made an additional 12,000 bucks on those other three buyers. So it was taking it seriously enough where I looked at it more as a consultant. Like I was almost the, like the housing advisor for the people who thought they were in this situation. So I tried to make everyone prove to me that they couldn't buy a home before I would put them in a lease option. And if, if I could prove that they were qualified, then I would move them over into a conventional buyer funnel. I know several people that that's their strategy. <clears throat> They're either mortgage brokers or realtors, and they will market for tenant buyers on lease options or owner financing deals. And uh, will many times get the people that can qualify for loans and get them financing now and then go find them a house and make money from either the mortgage side or the uh, broker side. Yep. But yeah, super powerful. And I found that to be like, after they went through that filter, I found that of what I had left, about 50% of those could qualify for a mortgage, like an FHA or a conventional. So they moved into another part of the business. One of the, one of the other three buckets, I would move them out of lease option and over to conventional which gave us a whole lot more inventory, right? With lease options, I had one or two houses to talk to them about at any given time because they move so quickly. Where with, now, did, did you have your realtor's license at the time? I did. I had, okay. I had four of them at the time. Oh, four uh, different states? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of how the, the, we underwrote the buyers. Once we had a buyer that we were comfortable with, I would present the kind of their, their financial plan. So what the mortgage broker and their credit guy had worked out. And we would present that to the seller. So here's their background check. Here's their financial plan. Here's their mortgage application. And I suggest that we move forward with this person. If they said, yep, that sounds great, Chad, then I would collect the full. And I, I'm, I just marked my option fee was always 4% or higher. But and the way the way I presented that to the buyer at the time, an FHA loan was at least three and a half percent down. So I said, you know, in order to like the most common financing that that most people get is FHA. So we need to make sure that, you know, you're on this path to homeownership and you've committed to that. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know that a down payment is one of the biggest hurdles for that, right? Okay. So we're going to take 4% and why, that's going to be a fee. It's not a deposit. So if you don't do what you promise, this, this is the seller's. If you do what you promise, you'll see a line on the settlement statement that where this is being credited back to you. And we would actually, I would get, have them give me two months bank statements and, the, and write a check for the option fee. And then that got emailed to the mortgage banker. So when he was going through underwriting two years later, he had the source of funds. He could show that it left their bank account, went into, you know, to the attorney's office. And then we can show the attorney uh, ultimately paid me that as the, as the, the, so that's an important distinction right there. <clears throat> the tenant buyer would make the check out to the attorney. Right. Right. Cause then when that tenant buyer is trying to get their financing later, it makes it a whole lot easier to get that applied towards their down payment. If it's shown to an attorney or an escrow company, title company, and not to Chad Corbett, LLC. Right. You know, Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so you need to you need to be able to source the funds back and prove they came from that buyer, not from somebody else. So that was part of, you know, in order to do this, like at this level, you really like I, I made sure I understood exactly what the lender's needs were and, and made sure that I was a good partner for the lender. So they were always willing to do this. And I've never like in all the ones that I closed, we never had to backtrack and prove anything because we proactively put all those documents kind of in escrow in the beginning and, and we're able to prove you know source of funds and everything. So once we found like someone that the seller was comfortable with, I would actually put the tenant buyer and the seller together like we would meet and have coffee. And I would say, okay, guys, so we're going to do everything else from here in an attorney's office. So you can have all your questions answered. You have, you know, that attorney will work for you. So then I would send it to my attorney and basically open escrow. Now, this is where I deviate from most people. When I was trying to figure out how to mitigate the risk for the buyer, I said, you know, how do we hide the asset? Like, how do we, if someone does end up sued or in a, a, you know, like a, a probate litigation or whatever it might be, how do we make sure this buyer doesn't lose everything they've committed? And the best answer I could find was a land trust. And for $500, I can get all the paperwork drawn and get the, the asset transfer $475 in legal fees and, and recording fees. So for 475 bucks, which the seller would pay, I would get it rolled in. I would clear title. So we would do an exhaustive title search. We would clear all the contingencies in the purchase agreement. So the inspections were either waived or completed. If there was a remediation limit, we would negotiate that and resolve it. But we would clear all contingencies just like we would in a conventional loan process. And then we would roll the asset into a land trust. My LLC became the trustee on the land trust. And notice like, what's important is I'm not the beneficiary. I'm not the trustor. I'm the trustee. So what that means, if a seller skips town or gets killed or anything else happens, my company has the authority to sign the closing paperwork so my buyer doesn't lose everything. So that was just an it was an added layer that I made the seller pay for that I, it made me feel a lot more comfortable because none of us can predict the future, even if it is only two years out. There were so many uncertain variables that I was more comfortable doing it that way. And then so we would once all that was done, the land trust would be created and we would have closing documents. So they would come in and, and I would, you know, had basically a checklist of every single thing that they needed to understand explicitly. And they would initial beside line by line, there was a seller disclosure and a buyer disclosure. And they would initial each item and then sign it at the bottom and it would be notarized. And then we would take it to the courthouse, roll it over into the land trust and record the option against it. 
And that was it. We handed them the keys. We did a video testimonial and we congratulated them on being homeowners because mentally we wanted to create an environment. We wanted all the emotions of buying a home to be present so that we wanted them to feel like you own this, you're responsible for maintenance. And a couple of things I failed to mention as part of this, we offered a free appraisal. So when the appraisal was obviously not done up front is when they exercise their option, they get a free appraisal from the lender. And then we also, the money they paid for credit repair, I made them pay up front because I wanted them to have to ante up somehow, but we credit them back. The, all the money they paid for credit repair would be credited on the closing statement. So on the final closing statement, you would see their initial 4% option fee. You would see a credit for that, a credit for their credit repair, and then you would see a free appraisal on the lender's line. And we closed it up. Everybody signed. And I had a 95% success rate. That's Um, fantastic. I think sometimes, like, I I was terrified that some of the stories I've heard, you know, they're going to skip town. They'll take all the appliances and all the copper and everything. So my worst lease option story that I can share with you guys was a kid. He was, Jason was 23 years old. He had a baby and a, and a new wife and he didn't want to be renting and moving them around. Like he had everything that, that he had all the motive, the right motivations to be a homeowner. He was working a factory job and one week. So he moved in, he put $25,000 in repairs into the house. So all brand new laminate hardwoods, completely painted it, rehabbed the kitchen, added a brand new deck, like treated lumber he had 25 grand in rehabbing this over probably a six month period. About a year into it, the seller called me and said he quit paying rent. And I'm like, oh no. So I immediately got in the truck and ran over there. And I'm like, this place is gorgeous. And he was nowhere to be found. When I finally got Jason tracked down, he had firmly planted his head in the sand because he was embarrassed. He had lost his job. His girlfriend left him and took off with the baby and he didn't know where she was. And he was just devastated. And he was too proud to call me or the seller and let us know. The way it all turned out is he added, we ended up selling that home conventionally because he, all the repairs that he put into it raised the equity level of the property. I was able to get the seller out on a conventional deal and he ended up making like 25 grand. And he he was under, essentially underwater when we started this. So it's sad for the buyer, but he knew his risk and he knew he knew that he was taking a risk rehabbing a house he didn't own yet. And he didn't like we offered to work it out with him, but he was just psychologically checked out. He was just done. And I, we tried to work with him, but that's as bad as it gets for me. Like, that's the worst story I can tell. And, you know, the home was in far better condition when the tenant buyer defaulted than it was when we put him in there. Isn't that amazing? If you just do the simple, basic things really, really well. You'll have success in this business, no matter what kind of deals you're doing, lease options or owner financing or subject twos or wholesaling, whatever. Keeping the the, the simple, basic things um, is really important. And one of the things I thought was so key to this is that you're only putting tenant buyers in your houses that have a realistic chance of getting a mortgage in one or two years, yep. right? They have to, which means they have to put down three, four, five percent down. They got it. They got to afford the house. They have to have the right debt to income ratio, yep. and you're you're pulling their credit. You know they don't have two hundred thousand dollars in unpaid child support or alimony or taxes or whatever, and anything that they do have dings on their credit, they're things that can be fixed, realistically, because you're setting them up for success. 
And so, I could hand them a roadmap. So the lender, part of the lender's responsibility was they're obviously not going to qualify for financing, but I need the specific reasons written out, yeah. like in basically an outline. And that became their financial roadmap for the next two years. Nice. Fantastic. 95% success rate. I remember when I first quit my job in 2009, I hired a coach out of Dallas. You guys know him. Some of you, John Jackson. And uh, he was at about 90, 85, 90% success rate as well. And very similar. You just get nice houses, right? And you don't deal with the junk properties. You don't deal with the real expensive homes, but like nice middle-class median priced homes. Make sure that you get at least three to 4% down yep. and make sure that you're working closely with a mortgage broker and a credit repair company that can help them get that financing. And you'll have a good reputation. You won't be showing up on the uh, local news. You know, I was just, somebody just emailed me yesterday, a story of this one company that does a lot of rent to owns and I forget their names, but, um, this is now the third state that is suing them. These guys do hundreds of deals all over the country. And this is the third state that's suing them for these unethical practices. And they were doing a lot of rent to owns, but what they were doing is they were getting crappy junk properties, 50 grand. They were buying, they were worth 50 grand, like fixed up. They were buying them for 20, selling them as a rent to own lease option for 50, making the tenant buyers responsible for all the maintenance and repairs and these trash properties. Anyway, they were getting the, um, you don't want to do lease options on those kinds of homes. Right. And they're just asking for trouble. They just would get anybody in that they could churn and burn. If they couldn't get financing, they'd kick them out. And, you know, even here's a problem with dealing with low end homes like that, right? Like even if you do get to a point where you can get financing, let's say your tenant buyer goes through all the hard work of getting their mortgage their credit fixed so they can get a good mortgage. Do you think they're going to want to use to get a mortgage on a house in that neighborhood? No, they're not. They're going to want to get a mortgage on a $100,000 house, $150,000 house in a better school district with better schools, things like that. So anyway, real important. So something else I want, you said not too high, not too low. And obviously the low end is, you know, what you just talked about. I learned my lesson on the high end. So at the same time frame, a lot of the luxury real estate, which here is basically anything above $300,000 is a high end property. We have a meet at that time. The median was only 140. So once you got like I tried to style, what I ultimately learned was 50% plus or minus the median price was kind of that the bandwidth where 80% of transactions happen. Because I was new to this and I was eager to find learn as much as I could, I took on a, a half a million dollar home once. And it was a beautiful home on a nice big piece of land. What I found is I was able to easily, I, this is where I really learned more about like, so I didn't realize that, that, you know, people of Islamic faith don't really participate in the North American finance system. They believe in a shared risk model and they don't, even if they have the ability to get a loan from a conventional mortgage lender, some of them won't do that because it's, it's not culturally what, the, what they believe a finance agreement should be. So I was able to meet a lot of business owners and a lot of people who didn't want to participate in the conventional financial market, like with, with, you know, a conventional mortgage, any kind of mortgage. However, I had great conversations with, with great people, but they're very discerning. Like when you get into that price point, there might only be one house in the entire city that they could do this with, but they still won't. I couldn't get them to close. They would come in, they would look at the house once or twice and they would sit there and 
you know, we just, we need a four car garage. And, you know, so they have, they have the champagne taste and the champagne budget. They didn't want to participate with a, with a regular mortgage, but they, you know, they wanted their cake and eat it too. They wanted to have creative financing tools, but they wanted to have a pick of every house in town. And I found it really hard to move the higher end properties for that reason. It had nothing to do with the property. It had to do with, with how picky the buyers were. Yeah, that's really good. How would you handle in your agreements with the tenant buyer, the repairs, the regular maintenance and repairs on the property? Was there a certain limit that the tenant buyer was responsible for and anything above that the seller would be responsible for? I think it was typically 1500 bucks. Okay. In a, in a, in a month, 30 day period. Yep. Cool. And we um, also, I think I forgot to mention this, Joe. The other thing we did is we threw in a free warranty for them. So they would get a free home warranty from HWA, which was 475 bucks. But that was something just kind of as a closing gift that we included a, a one-year home warranty. Yeah, that's smart. Cool. So what was what's your philosophy on if there is a small mortgage on the property? Do you ever do subject twos or, or take over, do a contract for deed or a subject two to buy that property? Only if I'm staying in it. So I've never gotten myself to where I've felt comfortable if, if I build rapport with a seller and they sign a sub tube on the trust that I built, I feel like, and this is just my personal values, but I think it's my obligation to see that through. I agree. So you will do a subject two if the opportunity. Now, how long well, do you keep it a subject two? Uh, it just depends on the strategy. I mean, like my very first, uh, I think it was my very first deal I took as a subject to, and then I decided to, to wholesale the house. So it, it, we ended up, I ended up wholesaling it. And then that, that took out the mortgage. Typically, like if I'm going to flip the house, you know, it would be subject to with a six month term. And then I know that I'm going to, I'm going to take them out on the disposition. It is not a tool that I used a ton because lease options. I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of ways to, to make money in real estate and, that, that never was my favorite tool um, yeah. just because I, got, I, I don't yeah. like, I don't like that myself. Like I'm the kind of guy, if I finance furniture because they attract me with like a 0% for eight years or something, I end up paying it off in a week. Cause I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to miss a payment and destroy my credit score. So I I've learned that I'm a really, I, I know what I'm good at and bookkeeping and the intricacies of, of managing all that is it's not my, my strong suit. So Really, for that reason, it wasn't my favorite tool just because I always had to be looking at it. You know, it's the same reason I'm not a day trader. Like picking stocks is fun, but you've got to look at it every single day or you'll get your ass handed to you eventually, right? Yeah, that's good. When selling on a lease option, how much do you mark the, up the price for the tenant buyer? So let's use round numbers. Let's say it's a $200,000 house, it's worth 200000 today as is. And you're going to put a tenant buyer in it. You're going to sell it to them in two years. What price would you set it at? I would set it at two hundred thousand. I would take an eight thousand dollar option fee, and that would be my assignment fee when I assign that the, the lease option back to the seller, the the property owner. Then I would take the eight thousand. My LLC would take the eight thousand dollars, and the seller would actually credit the buyer for that on the settlement statement. That's how it comes back to the buyer. So I would make eight grand on that deal. And I would be in it for probably a total of seven to seven to ten days is all it would take me to make that. So you're what? Let's use that as an example because you do this a little differently than I do. I used to do it uh, with the option, the lease option, but I found it was just I got tired of explaining it, so yeah. I just did it differently. Where I would 
assign a lease option agreement with the seller and then ass- assign that to the tenant buyer. doesn't matter much, but okay. Walk through the numbers here. A house is worth 200 today. You're, you don't want to stay in the middle. You're going to do a lease option assignment. Then you sign an option to lease option with the seller, right? What are the numbers on that agreement with the seller? So it would, we would like, I would do a, like evaluate the property myself and say, here's what I believe the fair market value is. And then we would look at their equity situation. And, you know, I would factor in the principal pay down because you have two years of principal pay down. So you're at least getting that equity. And depending on where the, you know, I would actually, so something I didn't mention in the closing paperwork as part of the, the checklist and everything. Uh, my attorney that did the closing, she would do a full amortization schedule of the existing loan. So they could see at any time if they exercise their option, how much the, the payoff would be on that loan. So it, and I use that as kind of a motivational tool to show them you're making progress. The reason I don't mark the price up, the reason I'm not saying if it's worth 200 a day and I'm closing in two years, I don't want to try to guess the market, market up to 210 and have faith that that's going to work out. Market corrects. Guess what? I'm the one in the courtroom saying that, you know, well, Mr. Corbett, did you have a crystal ball or what did you, what were you thinking when you put this person in this financial situation? What are you going to say to that? So what I can say is I established a, a, a base, a price, a value basis on the day that, that, you know, I made this fair deal. And I knew that through principal pay down, the tenant had a chance of building equity. But so the tenant is getting that equity. They're building equity in the house. You're, you're setting the, let, let's go back to the example of the house is worth 200,000. The seller owes 190. Okay. All right. You, you find a seller, they want to do a lease option. What are the numbers on the paperwork with the seller? So it would be a, a, an option to lease option at $200,000 there would be an option fee of $8,000. And then the other paperwork that would connect that agreement would be the assignment. So the assignment of lease option and the assignment fee is equal to is $8,000. So the sale price would be 200,000. I wanted to keep the price for, for liability reasons, but also for motivation reasons. So if, if I'm trying to explain this to a tenant buyer, it's like, listen, you know, because of at the time, Dodd-Frank made it illegal to offer any rent credits, right? So it, that eliminated that. So, I, you know, I know you're used to seeing advertising that says you'll get 20 or 30% credit for each month that you make your rent on time. We're not playing that game. We price homes fairly. We put you in, in a, at a fair price. And we also put you in a position so you're paying someone else's mortgage over the next 24 months. And you, you're aware of that, right? Okay, so you know that there's part of that payment is interest and the other part is principal. So every month that you make that mortgage payment, the principal balance you know goes down and the equity in the home goes up. So when you exercise your option close, if the market spikes and goes through the roof, that's to your benefit. If the market tanks, then you also have an out clause. If the home won't appraise, the buyer has an out clause. So I, I tried to show them, you know, the benefit of that. And I didn't mark the price up. I felt like 4% was really fair for a few days work. Okay. So then what's the sale price to the tenant buyer? It's 200,000, right? 200,000. Explain uh, to me again, how does, how does the tenant buyer capture the principal pay, pay down? Well, like, so the, the principle, I guess that, that, that was a me misspeaking. So that's actually the 190 would, let's just say it goes down to 180 and then the seller owes, owes 180, they get 200. So they would actually just recapture their, their option fee, not the, the principal. Right. Okay, cool. I want to talk about your traveling. 
You're traveling a lot. Why? What, what's going on? Are you running from the IRS? No. Why are you traveling so much? A bad joke. I'm this, um, this picture. I don't know. No I want everybody to know. I don't know anything about Chad, about running from the tax man. I'm fully paid up. I just paid my quarterlies and I'm, I'm a good guy. Okay. Um, so this, this picture on my wall, this is from a Russian artist. It took me four years using, or four months using Google translator to, to get the, this is the only original in the country. I own the rights to it now, but it's a BMW motorcycle beside of a lake. And in, in 2011, you know, I was making more money. I, I grew up really, really, not privileged in, in a small town in West Virginia. So I had worked my way up to an income that I didn't even think was possible for myself, but I wasn't really fulfilled. And at 29 years old, when I looked at the leadership above me, I didn't really see people that I wanted to be like, you know, they were controlled by paychecks and they, they were, they were basically l- leveraged by the things they owned and the lifestyle they had built. And I think that's just a really shitty way to live your life. So I walked away. Um, it, it was scary, but I, I had money and I had savings. And I spent two months in the Canadian backcountry with a fly rod and my motorcycle. And I really got to know who Chad is and what he, who, what he really wants to do in, in the world. And I didn't know the, the how, like, but the why came to me one night on a, on a mountaintop. And uh, actually I have a hat. So in Fernie, British Columbia. There's a, a lake up above town between the three sisters, and I was there, and it was it was almost as if the universe was just sat down beside of me and whispered in my ear. But it was always help others more than yourself, always be able to turn a six figure profit so you can have enough to live and give away, and always be able to run it from anywhere in the world with an iPhone so you can capture this moment on demand. I had been out for two months, like by myself, no communication, no GPS, no plan. Just I would go do what I wanted to. And it was a feeling of freedom I'd never really had. Like I, I felt just alive. And I said, you know, if I can accomplish those three things, I think I can feel this way forever. Like I can just be that person. And when I came, I, like choosing Roanoke was part of that. Like I, I chose a town with a low cost of living, but a high enough population to start a real estate investing business. I had no ties here, knew nobody. And I, I started, you know, with wholesaling, didn't like it, started with lease options, couldn't trust to delegate it. So I, I put the kind of put the strategy on the shelf because I didn't trust employees putting my company at risk without me watching them on every every step of the way. And then I built a real estate team. And then I started, I, I've kind of found my aha in probate. And that was the one that really let me meet all three rules. So I can provide more value to the world than I was for myself. I could make a really good income and I could run it. And I built the entire company around this. I can run the whole thing from a phone if I need to. And once I finally got that right and got it in place, I haven't really been home for like the last four years. I'm home eight to 10 weeks a year here. I'm technically a Florida resident. I've got a home in Virginia. I, I split my time between usually like I spend a lot of time in Toronto. I spend a lot of time in, in Florida down where like in around Cape Canaveral where our office is. And then I spend most of my time in national parks and uh, and unique places. And recently I had a goal to retire by 40 and go into the nonprofit world and take everything that I've learned here and, and try to spread that benefit around. I actually, to the extent I made the choice not to have children so I could do that. Um, I kind of called bullshit on myself last year and I'm like, why wait till you're 40? Do it now. 
So I've recently started doing, I do uh, photojournalism and I train people to ride big off-road motorcycles. So I, I wanted to merge all that together for philanthropy. It's like, so how do I tie in, you know, a camera, a motorcycle and my energy and experience to, to make the biggest impact I can. So I now travel across the world and do charity projects on motorcycles. And uh, I spent the entire month of April, I was in Nepal we put enough water treatment systems in place to help 7,000 people survive another year. And I'm doing it as a photojournalist and on a motorcycle, we're going to to areas of Nepal that have never seen visitors outside of their own little region. They've never seen, they've never even seen a Tibetan person, you know, if, if you're outside of the mountain range. So we have special clearance from the government. We go to these areas where NGOs can't reach, and we take a, a very specific solution that MSR out of Seattle has developed. It's essentially a miniature pool chlorinator. So you pour salt water in, chlorine comes out. So I've really set my sights on, you know, just spreading as much of, of you know, the, the being as generous as I can and making as big of a positive imprint on, on the world as I can. So wow. I, I do a lot of charity travel now. I do a lot of camping and, and different things. So that's how I got where I'm at. Super cool. Man, good for you. Congratulations. Yeah. Let's talk about probates real quick. We need to wrap this up. What do you like about probates and what are you doing with them right now? So my first, pro- the deal that got me into probate was actually a lease option. I think the best way to convey all that is to tell you the story. So I had, I had mailed a list of I looked at the NA back in 2012, 13. I looked at the NAR survey of home buyers and home sellers. And what I realized was on average, the average home homeowner will sell every nine years at that time. I think it might still be that. But I was like, hmm. So I went to list source. I pulled a list of homes that had at least 51% equity that hadn't transferred in the last nine years. And I mailed it. You talk about pissing some people off. Like I had so many angry people. I, I never, never dreamt that that list would be volatile, but People are really emotionally attached to their homes. One of them was an older lady who said, you don't ever mail me again. I'll die in this house. And I was like, thank you. I'll I'll take you off the list. And I was like, what a failed marketing campaign. Well, 60 days later, I get a phone call and it's her daughter, the same lady. And her daughter was frantic. Her mother had a stroke the night before. She was in ICU and they were going to discharge her out. Uh, but they couldn't afford it. They didn't have the liquidity for in-home care and they surely couldn't afford, you know, the rehab center. So she was stuck. And I said, all right, give me two hours and I'll, I'll be over. So I gave her four options. One, I'll buy this house cash right now. Like you walk away, give me 48 hours, 48 to 72 hours to get title work and you'll have the money in hand. She flinched really hard. She was like, oh, you could tell that she, and, and when I got there, there was a Remax sign propped up against the house. What I found out is that it had, ex, it had been on the market for 12 months with no showings and no offers. And so option two was we'll go back to the market as is, where is, and we'll get it done quickly, but on market. Option three is we'll go conventional, but we're going to empty out the personal property, use the money from that to do a, a kind of a cosmetic rehab, some punch work. And then we'll go out to the conventional market. And option four was my lease option program. And to my surprise, this was, she owned it free and clear. So she chose the lease option. So we were able to get $8,000 up front, 1100 first month's rent, 1100 last month's rent. That was enough money to get her mom out of the hospital and into care. Wow. We, sold, we sold the furniture, made $10,000 off of that. 
So I put a, a good chunk of money in her pocket up front, which helped solve her immediate problem. And then the tenant buyer, that was actually the deal that, that so we turned three of the buyers into conventional buyers. And one of them, it was a yeah. pair of re- retired Navy vets that forgot to pay their last electric bill when they moved away from Pennsylvania. That's it. That was all that was standing in their way. So within six months, we had it closed out full price, no contingencies with a VA loan. And you can do these with VA, by the way. I was nervous about that. I'm like, I don't know if I can get this past the VA appraiser. But that was, and that evening I went home and I'm, I'm a really introspective person. I always like to look at what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And what, what am I going to do next time? And that evening was the aha moment that has blown into my whole business now. I said, you know, how many people are in her situation? How many people think they're stuck? They think that, you know, they have 80, 90% of their whole net worth tied up in real estate and they just need $10,000 for their immediate problem. So I went to the courthouse and I I went to the records room and I learned about, well, I first met with the probate clerk and had her educate me on the probate process. Then I went to the records room and pulled the data. And then I kind of had the inspiration. My my business partner, Jim, was also working on this down in Florida uh, as an investor. And we were on a, a short sale mastermind together and we, we got to talking. We said, well, what if we just teach everyone how to do this? And so that was the, the lease option got me into probate. And now we, we have an army of researchers. We gather data from every courthouse in the country. And I have trained literally thousands of investors and agents across the country to do just what I just what I told you on that story. So to very empathetically approach homeowners with with a, a broad scope of service. So not I buy houses or I list houses like a, a, a single singular selfish offer, but give them 25 reasons to reach out. We have a team of people here locally that help families through probate. And we have realist, you know, we can a quick cash offer. We can do a conventional sale. We have estate sale companies, clean out crews, contractors, social workers, senior moving companies, nursing home, family law attorneys, registered investment advisors, whatever it is that can be stressing you out gives you a reason to respond to my marketing. And then obviously, 80% of senior citizens have their net worth tied up in real estate. So the conversation very quickly segues to their biggest problem, which is the real estate. They have tons of equity, but no liquidity. So you can apply everything we've talked about here today, like looking out for their best interest, understanding what their goals are. And then that just becomes your service roadmap. You just just knock their problems out one at a time. And it's it's a way that you can really, the key to it is, is using tactical empathy to really differentiate yourself. So rather than calling, talking about your business and your strategy and what you can do, you call and focus on them and say, what's, what's been the toughest thing so far? And you just knock them out one at a time. And, and you don't even have to, I've been playing a game since 2012. I've never asked anyone to do business with me. Because if I'm putting enough value, uh, uh, one of my mantras is provide value first. And if I do a good enough job at that, you'll sign the paperwork without me asking. And so far, I'm batting a thousand. Good for you, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Somebody was just mentioning this on my previous podcast. It's something that Lee Arnold came up with. But I've heard it many different ways. It's like when you give people what you they want, you'll always get what you want. Right. So our, our focus first and foremost is that. Nice. You have something called all the leads. Chad, what is that? What's all the leads about? So all the leads right now is, is we provide a, a system, a full system for anyone who wants to get into probate as an investor, as a broker. It doesn't matter. We cross train everybody the same. I, I'm not a big fan of the gap that exists between brokerage and investment. I'm really opinionated on that. It shouldn't be there. 
investors should either be realtors or be connected with good realtors and vice versa. There shouldn't be a gap in the industry. Like there's 25% of, of pretty much every market I've ever looked at, 25% of it's happening under the radar off market and realtors get cut out of that business. And there's a lot of opportunities also for the on, on market assets if investors will embrace the right realtor. So that's pretty much how we train people to approach probate. You're not an investor. You're not a realtor. You're Chad. So you you take the titles away, and that really differentiates you from competition. So what we do, we go into court. We send live researchers into courthouses in every county in the country. We bring that data back. We augment it through our proprietary databases to add. We verify the, the existing information, and then we add additional information. So we'll give you phone numbers for the personal representative, email addresses, all the contact information for the attorney, and then all the court information. And we can take that a step further. If you want to do a data augmentation, you can click a button and we'll give you a full report on every piece of real estate that that person owned in any county in the United States. And that's something that, you know, it's proprietary to our system. We've we've went to big data and got these huge data sets and now we can do a match and a pen. But I think the biggest, that's the commodity. So we do probate leads, but I, I was, I'm never interested in being part of a downward price race. So obviously anyone can go get probate leads. If you're willing to sacrifice your time, you can get them. What I said is what's the real value here. And the real value is in, in teaching someone to be that transaction engineer. So within two hours, I was able to offer, offer that lady four options, four distinct options. And she picked which one was most valuable to her. And the big, like, I think our X factor is we have over 600 hours of archived teaching about probate. So the mastermind calls, the role play calls, I do a video series called Tips from the Trainer. I teach a class once a month with a national certification. So really, I mean, for me, my big why is make as big of an impact nationwide as I, as I did here in, in my market. So where I could only help a few dozen families a year, now I can help hundreds or thousands of families through through you guys. So that's what we do. We, we generate the lead. We have full marketing automation. We have an in-house, like in-house call center. So we have domestic ISAs making calls with trained by me. So they have, it's very specific. It's very, what your letters say, what the ISA is saying and what you, how you act on the appointment is all consistent, right? Because it's all part of a system. You don't have to use that. If you want to do your own marketing, your own direct mail, your own phone calls, that's fine. But we've identified all the choke points where most people fail and marketing is is the biggest one. They don't get the mail, you know, they don't get the letters out. They don't follow up with a phone call. So we've created automation for all of that. So we generate the lead, we automate the marketing and we train you on how to be, you know, how to have a valuable offer and the right skills on the phone. I'm looking at your website here. It's pretty simple. Order the leads, send your letters, make follow-up phone calls. That's about it. And um, are your markets um, exclusive? Not exclusive, but we, and with few exceptions, we, we lock it out at three subscribers. So in counties like, uh, like Maricopa or Los Angeles, like, or Cook, like just these massive counties with literally hundreds and hundreds of leads that have a huge landmass, we've, because of customer requests, we've actually broken those counties up into segments. So like LA, for example, we've broken into five pieces because most people are never going to work all five areas of LA. Yeah. I'm looking at one of my particular counties and it's available. Nice. (laughs) And that's, I mean, we're, you know, just like, I think 
based on population, like we're very heavily concentrated around the coast, like kind of the horseshoe around the bottom of the country. The Midwest is the biggest opportunity. I've, I've always been amazed, like places like St. Louis and Kansas and, you know, Des Moines, like we just don't find the interest where we have people on wait list 50 and 60 deep in Phoenix or in LA or in Sacramento. Like we literally have wait lists for years but in, in some of these Midwestern markets where you have, it's even easier. One of our top subscribers, he's been with us for since the beginning. He's in, um, in Iowa. I can't remember. But, but anyways, he, he's in one of those markets, not even as, as big as St. Louis. Des Moines? No, wait. He's in Nebraska. Douglas, Nebraska is, okay. is where he is. It's close to Iowa. La- the reason I pinned Iowa, last time I clipped through there, I got, tr- I got in trouble for not letting him buy me lunch because um, I went <laughs> Iowa instead of Nebraska but so anyways I mean you know he's in a market where he gets 30 leads a month and he's doing five or six deals um and like there's tons of opportunity in the Midwest but we for whatever reason we don't get the same level of interest as we do in you know bigger cities or on coastal regions so well explain a little bit how you structure you don't have to give me exact pricing because I know it varies by county but how do you structure the pricing for this so it's a subscription. So we're going to like, we, we provide the leads. We push them into a custom CRM design just for this type of prospecting. It's tied to our mail house, tied to our call center. And, you know, obviously if, if you're doing your own, we've built it. So as you talk to people and you realize which ones don't have real estate or don't intend to sell, you click an opt out button and then they're not in the next sequence of your marketing sequence. So all the software, all the training that we talked about, all that stuff's included in a subscription price. So your lead your software, your training, personal coaching, like something I'm getting in place right now by November 5th, each of our subscribers will have a personal coach as part of their price. So rather than being like most companies where we try to sell you one thing and then upsell you into coaching and upsell you again and upsell you again, we try to roll everything into one price and we try to keep it low. We don't require contracts because if we're doing what we're supposed to be, then you'll always be with us, right? So all that's rolled in there. The like so the median price for if you look at all across all thirty one hundred counties, it's about I think the median's two hundred and eighty three dollars for and the median is around ninety leads. So we have variable cost in every market. So we have variable pricing. It, you know, depending on how far a researcher lives from the courthouse, we have to pay him or her mileage. And some courthouses charge us to even get into the records room. So it's it's different, but across the board, you're looking at at you know two to three dollars a lead is typical. Okay, and then you also do the direct mail for people as well. We do, and <laughs> I've personally I don't even like to count up how much money I've personally spent figuring out which letters work and which ones don't. But the letters that we provide for you are proven in all 50 states. They've at this point they've made millions and millions of dollars. So we've gotten the letters in an online editor. You go in, you set up your letter, put the you know your logo, header, footer, however you want it. You have your choice of envelopes, your choice of handwriting, handwritten fonts, and then you click autopilot. Every month, your leads hit the CRM. The CRM triggers the mail. When the mail hits, it triggers the call center, and all you have to do is the part you're good at, which is providing value to people. Nice. Man, I know so many people where their biggest and best deals are probate leads. What, just for people who are budget conscious, what would you say, you know, on average, this is what you should expect to spend on uh, in marketing for a probate deal. And this is on average, the average wholesale profit you might make on the deal. 
to see the the ROI on that. You know what I'm sure. saying? Sure. So typically the cash conversion cycle is inside of 120 days. So if, if you, and, and it's uh, how much opportunity is in this list is, is really dependent on how educated you are. So if you have an option for brokerage, if you have an option for acquisitions, if you have an option for creative financing, you can squeeze tons of money out of these because you'll see a deal. You'll know how to put it together. If you're just trying to go out there and wholesale and you don't have any other value, you know, you could be six to eight months before you find the right deal that someone's willing to sell you for 60 cents on the dollar. But if you're out there trying to wholesale and you align yourself with a realtor who understands what you do and doesn't get in your way, when you find an opportunity that someone will sell for 80 cents on the dollar, you refer it to your realtor and you take a marketing fee or they pay for your next month of leads and mail. So, there's, you know, it's really dependent on who you are and how you approach this. If you follow everything that I teach, like the four bucket approach, like if you set your business up where you can, you can help and make money no matter why your phone rings, you'll cash checks in the first 60 days. And, you know, I mean, we have, uh, there's some case studies. If you look under the blog on alltheleads.com or in the top right, you can, and there's a, a global search bar, put in case study. And okay. the gentleman, that, the last one I did was a guy named David Pinnell. And he was a realtor in Fort Worth, is a realtor in Fort Worth. And he started kind of following what we teach. He'll do 110 transactions in the calendar year for over a million dollars. And 60% of them so far are wholesale deals. But 40% he takes in the brokerage. He does a conventional listing. But on his, on average, and this is in Fort Worth, so he has 21,000 realtors in his MLS, and he's got roughly 8,000 investors, like if you add up the population of all the RIAs that claim to have members, then you've got 30,000 people, direct competitors in his market, including Knock, Open Door, Zillow Instant Offers, all the iBuyers are, are in that DFW metro, right? He's averaging 55 cents on the dollar and on his wholesale deals and 60% of his deals are wholesales. So it's because he knows how to build rapport. He knows how to provide real value to the families. And we know what the iBuyers are offering. They're offering 80 to 90 cents on the dollar. He's coming in almost half of their offer and with full disclosure, like with a net sheet showing exactly what he's going to make on it and the seller sign with him because they see value beyond his real estate service. He's getting the house cleaned out. He's getting, you know, he's getting an estate sale to sell the property. He's helping find suitable housing for surviving family members. He connects them with social services. There's, you know, it's just like any good negotiator will never negotiate on price alone. You put as many gambits out there as possible so you can always give them a win, right? Well, if you're offering 25 different services, you only get paid on one, but you can offer all these others so you can be sure you get paid on that one. And when somebody, when you're, when you're up against a competitor who's competing on price alone, you kick their ass on terms. You say, listen, I like he's, he's, he's offering you that, but who's going to clean the house out? Who's going to get all the personal property sold and get the rest moved into the self storage and help your mother get into the nursing home? Did he he forget to mention he was going to do all that? And they roll, they're your client or you just bought that house. So it's, Quite honestly, it's the it's you know it's a very empathetic person is needed to you have to really embrace that provide value first mindset when you approach this. But if you do that, I mean, I've coached at this point dozens of guys that have gone from never doing a deal to being millionaires in their first year of business, 
And it's because they have a big heart and they actually do want to make a difference. And they let the seller decide. They don't go in and say, I'm going to get this wholesale. They go in and say, I can do this as a wholesale, this is as is, or this is a retail, which works for you. And they do, they, they let the buyer or the seller make the choice. I believe every, every bit of value we put out in the world comes back in multiples. And when you're providing that level of service to people in a stressful situation, you have inbound business from all different directions. So yeah. check out some of those case studies. I and mean, we've got some impressive, impressive folks doing this. Amen. That's good. Well, I'm going to give you a special link. Alltheleads.com slash Joe. If you're interested, alltheleads.com slash Joe, alltheleads.com slash Joe. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com or reimpodcast.com, you can get the show notes, you get the transcription and uh, this entire podcast, and you get all the links that we've talked about as well. This has been a great episode, Chad. I really appreciate you being on here. I've learned a lot about lease options. I've learned a lot about how to just take care of the customers, right? Like, and and try to give more value before expecting to receive any profits and you will win every time. Um, all right, so this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. If you wanna get more information about Chad, alltheleads.com slash Joe, alltheleads.com slash Joe, but you also have a YouTube channel. And if you just go to YouTube and do a search for all the leads, you've got some really good videos there. I've been looking at them here. Thanks. We work hard on content. Oh, yeah. Got a lot of great content there. Cool. Anything else? Any final words, Chad? No, I mean, I really just want to thank you, Joe, for the opportunity. I, I remember I used to go to the gym every morning at 530 when I, when I had a, a, a routine. And I used to, <laughs> even when I was strength training, I listened to your podcast every single morning. And I got a ton of value from it and a ton of inspiration from it. And Really, my motivation to do this was just to kind of try to pay that back. Like I, I got a lot of, you know, whether you know it or not, you've largely shaped kind of the, the the creative person I've become in real estate. And I just wanted to pay that back. So thank you. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Sure. Appreciate it, Chad. All right, guys, we're going to wrap this up. Go to alltheleads.com slash Joe. Check out Chad's YouTube page. It's really good. Just go to YouTube. Just search for all the leads. And you'll get some information there. <clears throat> and uh, you got, it's a great resource for um, probates and education, learning how to talk to sellers and stuff like that. All right, guys, we're out of here. We'll see you later. Take care. See you guys. Bye-bye.